Okay, that's looking good. All right, so on this Tuesday, October 17th, if you would pray with me. Gracious Lord, here we are again on a Tuesday at noon, come together this fellowship of people that you have called together to study your word. We've been in the story of David for a long time, and we're not done. And we are grateful for this gift of these marvelous stories and this, this, the honesty we see in the stories about David, who is both a great man and a flawed man, all at the same time, all at the same time. Probably says a lot about all of us, but we appreciate the opportunity to come together and study your word. Just fill us with energy and enthusiasm today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, my friends, is there anything y'all would like to talk about before we get started? Scott is scanning the room for those who are listening on radio. Okay. Well, let's go. It's October 17th. We are back in 2 Samuel. I did bring the wrong glasses today. They'll do. They'll do in a pinch. But if I... No, no, I mean, these are close. I just have some that I actually got by prescription for reading that are a little bit better. But, but these are okay. I've got, these I get for $6 a pair from Amazon, and they're just all over the house. They, they, spread, like, they spread like coat hangers. <laughs> okay, so we know, we know where we were last week, right? Yes, absolutely. This is it. This is this famous moment in the book of Samuel, really a famous moment in world literature, a famous moment picked up on by William Faulkner, who titled one of his books, Absalom, O Absalom, which is the David's cry, plaintive cry, when he realizes that Absalom has been killed in battle. Absalom, the second son who murdered his brother Amnon over Amnon's rape of Tamar and many years passed and there were many opportunities to right the ship as it were and all went all went past and isn't that like us you know sometimes in families we can just let things go on and on and on and fester we can harbor grudges against people um, I don't know if I've shared this in the last couple of weeks, but in an extended part of Patty's family, there were a son and daughter who lived across the street from there from parents, and they had not spoken in 25 years. And I'm sure everybody had forgotten even what it was about, but that's where it was, and nobody was going to be the first, and I've gotten that sense for Dave. Every time I come, I've taught this before, several, a couple of times. And every time I come to her, I get that sense in David, that David is, like so many of us, unwilling to be the first one, <coughs> right? To, to say, you know, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or whatever David wants to do. But he's basically taken the path of ignoring Absalom. And now, when Absalom leads a rebellion against David, 
and marshals the armies of the northern tribes against David um, and usurps him and takes the throne and comes into Jerusalem chasing David out of the city even. Hence this map. But when he dies in battle against David's explicit orders, remember David gave explicit orders that the men heard that Joab was not to be harmed. He is not really so much a battle as simply by Joab. You know, I was reflecting on Joab as I was preparing for today. I think he is the most, he's the darkest character in the Bible that nobody's heard of. He is a, he's a pretty bad dude. And he is quick, he is quick to take a life. Quick to take a life. Um, and um, his story, Joab's story alone, could be a substantial novel. Um, but Joab basically murders Absalom as he's dangling from the hair, his hair caught in the tree, helpless, and doing it against the explicit orders of David. But when David finds out what is his reaction to, to sit and simply to plaintively mourn, plaintively mourn for the death of Absalom. O Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son, O Absalom. It's, it's quite a moment. <laughs> I can't manage these glasses, much less see through them. <laughs> oh boy. You know, they told me this would happen when you get to 73. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, you're going to dispute that, my friend. Okay, I, I believe you. My, are my best years ahead? Okay, there we go. Very good. Because I know some of you have preceded me on this journey. All right. So look at... Um, We are right at the end of chapter 18. Okay? That's where we that's where we ended last week. So let's just let's just start at verse 33 just to get this moment, okay? The king was shaken, David's shaken because he realizes what has happened. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And just as a father, I just want to say to him, well, where were you all those years? So many opportunities presented to you, David, and now when it's too late, you're weeping over his guilt, I suppose, over his, um, I imagine he's reflecting on the word from, of God that Nathan brought him years and years before after David had taken Bathsheba and had taken Uriah's life, um, that he was bringing a sword into his own house and now it's here and he knows he passed up these opportunities to reconcile with Absalom or punish him or something rather than simply indifference. 
And now it's all just too late. It's just too late. Um, there is, Lauren has introduced me to various country songs, which I should have had one playing for you. It's called Till You Can't, right? Who's the, who's the? Cody Johnson, Cody Johnson, till you can't. I urge you to go home and if you have Spotify or Apple Music or something, listen to the song. It is one that you would want your children and your grown children to hear. It's a song all about till you can't. All the things that you say you're going to do with your kids or your family, your wife, one day, um, and you're going to have that option open until you can't. And it's a, it's, I, I am, I, I, I think about David because all of his opportunities with Absalom have passed. Verse chapter 19, Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army. The victory that day was turned into mourning. Now these are men who have just done what? They have just won a big battle. They have offered their lives. That's what happens in battle, right? They've offered their lives to David. They have gone into battle. Some of them have fallen. Some of them have died. They are victorious on the field of battle. And they come home as a victorious army. And what do they find? David moping and weeping up in the gate, top of the gatehouse. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. They know what Absalom had done. Absalom had led this rebellion. They don't know all the ins and outs of the story like you do, I'm sure. But they know what Absalom did. And rather than celebrating the victory, thanking his troops, right? David is just upstairs mourning and grieving and weeping, which on the one hand is understandable, but on the other hand, it's David has responsibilities. He has responsibilities. It's a, there is a time for mourning and weeping and grieving, but at this moment on this day, that's not it. So the men stole into the city that day, as men, they, meaning they kind of sneak in, they kind of quietly come in, you know, kind of probably bowed and sad-looking. The men stole into the city that day as men steal into a city who are ashamed. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to feel. It doesn't feel like they won. It doesn't feel like the lives lost or were appreciated by David. Like men who are ashamed when they flee from battle. Oh. The king covered his face and he cried aloud again, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There is no consoling him. I've talked enough about all the layers of guilt and regret probably wrapped up in all of this for David, but... He is king, and as king, he is the commander of these troops. And so Joab steps into the picture at this point. Joab, as you recall, is the commander of David's troops, David's army. 
Then Joab went into the house to the king, and he said, Today you have humiliated all your men. who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. Why does Joab say all that? Because in the ancient world, in a struggle like this, the household of David is forfeit if he dies, if he loses. Remember Mephibosheth? The little boy was carried out. They were all by the palace running after the word comes that Saul has died. It's because in the ancient world, Saul's household would be forfeit. Their lives, they would not expect to live and to survive. That's just how it was, that it was done to prevent subsequent rebellions by, against the winner. So, Joab is laying it on, but you can't say Joab's wrong about this. Look at verse 6. I can just, just feel this coming from Joab to David. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. This is no intellectual exercise for Joab. This is a raw emotion. Raw emotion. After this battle in which people have died in which men have been killed. And David, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. And Joab is a duplicitous, murdering scumbag. But he's not wrong here. He is right. David has responsibilities as king, as commander. You know, this is a tribal system, and the tribal chieftain is the commander of the troops. That's why, for example, just in the book of Joshua, the commander of the troops is God, because God is their king. And as king, God is the commander, and throughout the book of Joshua, when they do what God says, they win. When they don't do what God says, they lose. Now David is, the, David is the commander. And Joab is trying to brace him up to take responsibility and do the things that he should be doing. He says, I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all the rest of us were dead. Wow. I would say Joab's pretty comfortable with confrontation. What do you think? <laughs> and he's pretty comfortable speaking to David, the king, this way. What's at least one thing that would make him comfortable speaking to David this way? Because he knows David's secret. He knows David. He knows all the dirty laundry, right? Right? He's got photos. He's got pictures. <laughs> he knows all the dirty, he knows all David's dirty laundry. He's a duplicitous, murdering scumbag, but he's got a lot of things to hold over David. And I imagine that just emboldens him. I imagine the fact that he has gotten away with the murders he's done 
Abner, Absalom, more to come, emboldens him. People who do terrible things and are never held to account for it. What is that? What's the response? More. You keep doing it and you do more. Exactly. You know, that's how it is. That's the way of a world <coughs> marked by sin. Justice is holding people to account. That's why, you know, um, without justice, there can be no real peace. Without peace and order, there can be no real justice. They're intertwined. You can't, you can't pull them apart. You can't imagine you get one and not the other. I see, Joab says, I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by Yahweh that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. They'll just melt away. Remember, this is not like the armies of today. They're not all enlisted. They're not all wearing uniforms and stuff. They are bands of fighters that come from the various tribes and they respond to the call. And then when the call is over or they're tired of fighting, they just go home. And home isn't that far away. It's never that far away over here. You know, we watch what's happening in Israel right now. Everything is jam-packed into a little tiny area. That's what makes it such a cauldron. That's what makes it so dangerous. There's no spreading out and getting separation. It's like the forces of the Philistines and the Israelites and David and Goliath. They're all just right there. So it's... Um, Joab's probably right. The men are going to just... They're going to abandon David. Going to abandon David. They have done a lot. They have left, to use an old phrase, hearth and home to go fight for David. And he seems utterly unappreciative. He said, Joab finishes, he says, this will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. That's quite a speech right there, verses 5 to 7. Man. But he laid it out straight and clear. So the king got up and he took a seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, ready to receive them. That's, that's really all he needs to do is to be king in that moment. He doesn't have to go around hugging everybody or anything. They know Absalom's dead. They know that David's order was disobeyed because it was very clear, uh, you know, a chapter ago that the order to protect Absalom was something overheard by everybody. Everybody, quote, quote. David did it in such a way that not just the three commanders, but everybody, everybody heard. So the king is sitting in the gateway and they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Now, what a, that's kind of a telling sentence. Because truth is, everybody here is an Israelite. But these are specifically the men of the northern tribes 
the ten northern tribes who supported Absalom. And it is this division between the tribes that's becoming prominent again. And if you know the history of Israel, it's, this is a foretaste of what is to come, and it's deeply sad. So the Israelites who were defeated in battle, they have fled to their homes. But the story is not over. So any thoughts or questions before we go on? Because David's going to have to return to Jerusalem at this point. And David's going to have some good moments during this return. I guess he's just like us all, isn't he? He has good moments and he has some not-so-good moments. They're very dramatic in David's life because he's king and all this stuff, you know. But for all of us. You know, our life is composed of the choices we make. And sometimes we make good choices, and sometimes we make poor choices. And David made some terrible choices, but he did repent of them. If you ever want to get close to the heart of David, it's not in the story of Goliath. That's not the place to go to try to see the heart of David. You want to see the heart of David, you go to Psalm 51. A psalm David composed after his confrontation with Nathan, the prophet. After he realized, thanks to Nathan, thanks to God, the weight of what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he comes to God in repentance. So that would make Psalm 51. I don't know all the Psalms. I can't remember what, what numbers. I know the 23rd Psalm. I know the 22nd Psalm. Why, oh, why have you forsaken me? Uttered on the cross by Jesus. Um, I know Psalm 51. I know Psalm 119. This very long Psalm of the law. But so many of them I, I don't. Just a few pieces, but one is Psalm 51 because of David's, David's repentance. God doesn't ex God might hope we would make nothing but really good choices in life. That's what I have. That's like me and my kids. I I would hope that all of my sons would make really really good choices in life without fail. But do any of us? bat a thousand, to use a baseball analogy, because the Texas Rangers are winning, winning, winning. <laughs> no, nobody bats a thousand. The question is what you do with when you have made a bad choice, when you have done something that you regret, especially something that has harmed somebody else. And it doesn't have to be David's scale of murdering somebody. I suspect most of us will get through our lives without murdering somebody. But, hmm, a cutting remark, gossip. There are a lot of ways in which we can harm another person that falls short of murder but are, are serious and not simply insignificant. So, okay, now if y'all don't have anything, I'm going to go on to verse 9. I'm just talking away up here. 
Yes. Yes. No, we never attained that. Battle. Yes. But there's always the comparison to that battle. He's batting 400. Ooh, he's batting 192. But there's always that comparison to perfection. Well, you know who? Who are we? Who who did bat a thousand? Jesus. Jesus. And we are called to be Christ-like, right? So I would suggest to us that our comparison and our batting average just, we just want to, we don't want to compare my batting average to Patty's because I would come out second every time. <laughs> what I, what I want to do is, to be, is, is improve my batting average every day. Every day I want to strive. I want to make better decisions. I want to walk more truly in God's way, right? I want to live the kind of life that Jesus painted portraits of that Paul set out in his letters, lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit being something in me that everybody can see, the uh, joy and patience and, you know, self-discipline and the rest. So yeah, yeah, but not person-to-person comparison. Because here's, here's where we fall short. People will ask me about, about which sins are worse than others. Now, sins do the, the things that we do wrong in God's eyes, okay, let's call that sin, the things that we do wrong in God's eyes, of course they vary in the harm they do to others. It is a bad thing to gossip about a person, but it's not as harmful to that person as if you murdered them. I get that. I get that. But here is the danger of walking into the rank ordering of sins. Yours will always be less harmful than your neighbor's. <laughs> yep, yep. They, they, them, 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 them. Well, I, I know I did my stuff, but boy, look what they did. That's, 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 that's where that road takes you. So my suggestion is to you is you not worry about everybody else. You strive to be more like Christ every day. You're not given... Your vocation in life is not Jesus' vocation. You're not God incarnate. But every day, we want to simply love God with every bit of ourselves more truly. And we want to love others, especially those who are the hardest to love, the impossible to love more truly. Uh, Arthur preached on the parable of the Good Samaritan. He didn't spend long on the offensive nature of that parable told in Jesus' day, the offensive nature of it being that it's a Samaritan who knows what a neighbor is. But it was deeply offensive because the Samaritans were people that the Jews wouldn't even eat with. So, so in our lives, we are called to treat everybody with love and, and patience and self-discipline. Love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. Um, and what we do matters. So, yeah. Batting averages. I don't know what my batting average is. 
I don't really want to ask, but you know who knows? The big guy upstairs. Oh, yes, he knows. He knows. Yes. Yes. Okay, so Charles is saying if you want to know baseball adages, if you want to improve your batting average, stop chasing bad pitches. Good advice in life. See? Yeah. <clears throat> you ever read George Will? He's, he's a commentator from, he's pretty quiet these days. He's, he's getting up there. But uh, he loves a baseball. Charles Krauthammer loved a baseball. And they were anxious to talk about how much God must love baseball um, <laughs> in the nature of the game. So, could be. I don't know. Okay, now, verse, anything else? Verse 9 of chapter 19. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. See, going all the way back to what story? Goliath. You know, those kind of stories live on. Sure, of course they do. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? It's just all this talk. What are we going to do? What's going to happen? Absalom chased out David. Absalom is now dead. It's turmoil. It's chaos in the kingdom. Well, King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar. The priest. Remember, these are the two messenger guys who have been going back and forth between the city and David, carrying some messages, um, a communications conduit <laughs> from the city to David. So David says, take this message back. Ask the elders of Judah. Now that is one of the 12 tribes. That is, that is the tribe. It's the biggest of the tribes by far. It is the tribe which first crowned David king. He was the king of Judah for like six years before he was crowned the king of the united Israel. If we remember that. So, he sent a message. Ask the elders of, Israel, of Judah, the elders of the tribe of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my relatives. My own flesh and blood. Actually, they're all relatives, right? They're all cousins of some kind. They're all from the f line of Abraham. But you are my relatives. You are my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, this is how he's going to tell this. He's telling these two priests to find Amasa. Now, Amasa is... He's David's nephew. He's a nephew of David's. But Absalom took Amasa 
to his side and made Amasa the commander of Absalom's troops. So Amasa has been on the other side from David. Okay? So David tells the two priests, Are you not, he say to Amasa, Are you not my own flesh and blood? Hard to deny. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. You know, one of the great things about the way this is written, there's all these little mysteries in there. They don't all have to be answered. What does he know? Does he know what happened here? He didn't confront Joab about it when Joab came and confronted him about his poor kingly behavior. But what does he know? And now, why would he turn to Amasa to be the commander of David's troops? What, what would that gain David? What's that? He doesn't like confrontation. It seems that he doesn't like confrontation. Yes. Yes. What else might uh, turning to Amasa do? Bring the tribes back together. Exactly. You know, this, this holding the tribes together is going to prove to be very difficult. And in the end, it will fail. Because, as you know, there will be emerging after the death of Solomon, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They'll still all be cousins. But there will be the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. I can't tell you what a revelation it was to me when at about the age of 50 or so, that really sunk in. Before that, I'd gone to church most of my life. I'd heard sermons and all that kind of stuff, but I'd nobody ever taken the time to explain a darn thing to me about the Old Testament or the kingdom of Judah or the kingdom of Israel and how all that worked. And if you don't understand that, you're not really getting what's going on in these stories. You gotta, you gotta connect a lot of dots to really appreciate the book of Samuel. You can ride along on the surface, fine, but there are all these little pieces of it which require you to, to connect some dots so, anyway, verse 14, He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, Return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan River. So he's basically going to... Whoops! Okay, Scott. That was an overly aggressive... Okay... Here we go. Don't get frustrated, Scott. That was not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, <laughs> so he's got to retrace his steps. And he's stopping at the Jordan River. The Jordan River is significant. I don't, it, it's hard to appreciate it unless somebody explains it to you. The Jordan River is the river 
across which Joshua and the Israelites entered the Promised Land. Forty years after um, fleeing Egypt and Mount Sinai, wandering around for 40 years, they cross into Jordan, um, I mean into, into Canaan, on, across the Jordan from the east side to the west side. And so the Jordan River always represented freedom. Always represented freedom. Um, they were coming there, Joshua and the Israelites, to, to take the land that God had given them, and there they would live lives as God's people with God as their king. And that's why even in Jesus' day, when John the Baptist goes out to baptize, where does he go? It's not the only place one could go, but he goes to the Jordan River because of its symbolic nature to the people of Israel, to the Jews. And, yes? Why did it take them so long, 40 years, that space is so small, that why That is such a good question. So Charlotte's question is this. It's one I was confused about for many, many years of my adult life. I mean, really, because they cross the Red Sea, they make a beeline to Mount Sinai. There, in the space, not very long period of time, God gives them the law, they build a tabernacle, and then they head for the Promised Land. They make a beeline. They get there really quickly in the scheme of things. What happens is they send spies in and the spies come back except for Joshua and Caleb, and says, oh, no, 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 no. The people are like giants. We can't do this. We can't do this. Even though God has said, trust me, it's going to be okay, they say, no, 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 and the, whole, and the people all chicken out. They don't trust God. They're not going to do it. And God says, well, you are free people. Okay, you don't want to do it, fine. You're going to wander around in the wilderness till you die off. And then your children, your grandchildren will enter. And so 40 years pass. And then they come back and they enter crossing the Jordan River from the east side to the west side. But that's why. They just chicken... Well, they do. They send spies in. But this time they don't chicken. They trust God. That's how you get this... It's... Distrust of God is something that is generational. That's what the book of Joshua is about. The book of Joshua, not Joshua, the book of Judges is a story of cycles. You have a generation who is totally with God, and they have their children, and their children are kind of with God. And then those children have more children, and those children can sort of give, not a, give God a head nod once in a while. And it's this descending, descending cycle. I can remember talking with our friend Lior in Israel. He came from a family who had emigrated to um, Israel and founded one of the kibbutzes. So he came from a kibbutz family and his grandfather. And he said, here's the story of the kibbutz movement in Israel. The first kibbutzes 
were all totally sold into this idea of a kibbutz, this communal living and everything that went with that, okay? When they had children, the children were sort of into it. And when <coughs> they had children, it was, eh. And so the nature of the kibbutzes began to change. They began to try to have businesses, but still be able to go to the city for a, a career and all this kind of stuff, you know. So I just think that's just how humanity is. So yeah, that's where the 40 years in the wilderness comes from. It's a story about what? What is the point of the story? Is it the point of the story that it was 40 years, however long it exactly was, don't get in the hop on the 40. There's more 40s in their old there are in the Old Testament than there are what? Home runs and Texas Rangers bats. <laughs> so, so, so the, for, the 40s all over the place. They're not, they're not calendar events. The 40s signify wilderness time, wilderness time. And why do they wander in the wilderness? Because they don't trust God. What happens to us when we turn away from God? Where do we end up finding ourselves? In the wilderness, exactly. When Jesus is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, where is he tempted? In the wilderness. Yes? They got tired of eating manna. They got tired of eating manna. Yeah, they got tired of eating manna. They did, they did complain a lot about a lot of things. One time they were complaining, this is in the book of Numbers, one time they were complaining about um, not having enough meat. And so God inundated them with quail. The numbers in the book of Numbers around the quail story are that it's, like it's so deep you couldn't walk through it. They're drowning in quail. Yeah, interesting story, but of course they were sick of manna, but that's not the point. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust God. He didn't get the that whole 40 years time. Yeah, that's how they survived. Give us this day our daily bread. Because the manna wouldn't keep, the manna wouldn't keep. Every morning they went out to collect the manna. Could it, was it supplemented with other things? Well, I'm sure, but have you ever been, ever seen pictures of the Sinai Peninsula where they were wandering? Woo! I wouldn't want to have to, I, you ever saw, ever see the show Survivor Man? Okay, Survivor Man is this guy who goes out in these impossible places in the mountains or the desert, and he just survives with nothing. And he shows you how he does it. And I, to go out and try to survive on your own with nothing in the Sinai Peninsula, that would take some serious skill, much less feeding tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Okay, Patty. Do you have a question online? A question online. Okay, that I don't care. <coughs> this is from Paul McDonald. He wants to know, he said that he heard someone on the radio say that the Palestinians are essentially the Philistines of the Old Testament. Is that right? Okay, so the I okay, so I'm being asked whether the Palestinians are the Philistines of the Old Testament, and I would say no. That is not right. The, even the connection of the name Philistine to Palestina, which was what the Romans called the region after they obliterated Judea, that's even not accepted by most people. They are, the Palestinians are a Semitic people. Um, 
They're the descendants of Semitic people. The Jews are Semitic people. Semitic people, it's a language idea. It's a people who share a common language root, right? And they are um, um, if you get the, if you get the Palestinians together, there's resemblances, right? Amongst them in terms of their skin color and their hair and so forth. If the Jews had never spent 2,000 years in Europe and other places before returning to Israel, that's how they would look because that is how the Semitic people look or the Iraqis or other Semitic peoples from that part of, that part of the world. So, but that connection to the Philistines is not one I would, I would, I don't know who said that, but it's, it's an easy leap, but not many scholars really accept that as being a correct leap. Okay, there we go. All right. So, he has approached Amasa and said, come over to my side and you'll be the commander of my army for life. Verse 14. He went over the hearts of the men of Judah so they were all of one mind they sent word to the king, return you and all your men. The king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now, the men of Ju Judah had come to Gilgal. Here's Gilgal, just on the western side of the Jordan River. Okay? The men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan River. Now, they didn't really, I mean, it's not like they went out to get him because he couldn't get across on his own or his troops or whomever couldn't carry him or ride the horse across or whatever. Going to the Jordan to get him, to bring him across, is a way of acknowledging that David is returning as their king. It's an ancient custom. It's a custom of the ancient Romans. It's why Jesus rides through the eastern gate and is welcomed into the city on Palm Sunday when he's wrapping every messianic symbol there is around, there was around himself. Um, it's carried forward for centuries into the, into the medieval, into the Renaissance times of when a conquered city is visited by the conqueror, they had to open the gates and escort the conqueror in. It's a way of acknowledging who is top dog. Basically it. And the word for it in Greek is apentasis. Apentasis in the Greek is going out to meet Caesar or Caesar's son. And like we would call it giving him the key to the city, right? But you're going to meet him and escorting him inside the city walls. It's a big welcoming of your subjects. Up in Tasis in the Greek. Okay, so. Now look at verse 16. Shammai, son of Gera, the Benjamin, Benjaminite from Bahurim. Do you remember Shammai? You should. 
He got a lot of press earlier, a couple chapters ago. He was the guy who came out screaming and hollering and throwing stones and saying, you've got the blood of Saul's household on your hands, yada, yada, you got this and you got that. And it, it was so bad that David's men were ready to go put an end to Shammai. But David said what? No, leave him alone. This is that Shammai. Boy, did he pick the wrong horse. <laughs> right? Because now David's back, and David is the king. He's being brought across the Jordan River by the tribe of Judah, the mightiest of all the tribes. Shammai, son of Gera, the Benjamin, uh, Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites all along, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons. <laughs> they made a lot of babies. And 20 servants. So, who is Ziba? Remember that story. David encountered Ziba on the way out of town. Ziba is Mephibosheth's steward. And Ziba said Mephibosheth had abandoned David. Even after David had taken him in and let him live and told him he would have a place at David's table every day, Ziba said, nah, nah, nah. He's abandoned you, David. And so David said, man, he says, okay, okay, well, everything that was his is yours. So Ziba's now come out and Shammai has come out. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. Oh my, oh my, they are hoping to get on the good side because as we might have suspected at the time, Ziba was lying, lying out of his hat. When Shammai, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate on the ground. This is that obeisance thing. You fall down on the ground. You put your head down. You put your arms forward, you know, in honor of the king. And he said to him, my, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Well, at least the man is straightforward. He isn't trying to pretend it never happened. May the king put it out of his mind. <laughs> For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But the day I have come here is the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Now that's kind of a funny construction. The tribes of Joseph. What is that referring to? It's referring to the fact that he is the first of the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes includes the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim who were the sons of Joseph. And they, they are... Should I explain how you get to twelve tribes? Would that be helpful? Okay. Just takes a moment. How many sons does Jacob have? Twelve tribes. So... One, one son, Joseph, you know about, he ends up in Egypt. 
Have you seen the show, Joseph's Magic Technicolor Dreamcoat? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? So, he has two sons by an Egyptian wife named Manasseh and Ephraim. And when the tribes settle in the Promised Land, they take the tribe of Levi, this is God's destruction, the tribe of Levi, one of the sons, one of the sons is named Levi, they are not to get land. They are to be the tribe of priests and they are to be supported by the other tribes. Now you would think then that would mean, well, we have 11 tribes. Okay? But the, but the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim take a number that is 11 because of Levi, Joseph doesn't get land in his name, which would take it down to 10. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then you add back in Manasseh and add back in Ephraim and you end up at 12. So you have 12 allotments of land. Thank you. Thank you, yes, yes. All right, so. The, the, this weird construction that I don't think you see very much, the tribes of Joseph, is meant to say that he's the first of the ten northern tribes. The two southern tribes are Judah and Benjamin. Now he is a Benjamite, so I can't sort that out for you because I don't understand that part. Maybe nobody does. But he is presenting himself as the first person representing the northern tribes. Okay. Well, Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shouldn't Shammai be put to death for this? He cursed God's anointed. He accursed God, Yahweh's anointed. He skated when we left. He's not going to skate now. We're back. We are back, baby. David replied, What does this have to do with you, Abishai? You sons of Zariah? Basically, this is none of your business. What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? Don't I know that I have the power of life and death over this man? We're cousins. This is the time for reconciliation. Not capital punishment because of stuff the guy said. So the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king promised him an oath to that effect, that David was not going to give an order to kill Shammai. It's, 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 David, you know, if you just put David's king hat on for a minute, his job right now is to cement these tribes back together. Because the, the division had basically been between the tri tribe of Judah, a little bit of Benjamin. Benjamin's tribe's so small, they don't matter much. But these northern tribes. Okay, and that, we're going through that now. Sorry. What? We're, are we going through the splitting and the going back? Oh, the, the, the big split? Yeah. Now that's coming in the book of Kings. That's later. That will be, the tribes will finally split, split, split after the death of Solomon. That has nothing to do with the modern state of Israel. Modern state of Israel is there are people from all these tribes 
if they were to do like their Ancestry.com, which some of them do, they're all mixed together there, you know. that They don't live in allotments of land or anything anymore like they did when they were settling the Promised Land, you know, more than 3,000 years ago, because they were off the land for 2,000 years. I mean, the reason so many of them look European is because they were European for so long, right? And now they're back in Israel. But no, it you know, it's this is really a good, good question because there's really, you cannot take your Old Testament and read it into the modern state of Israel. The claim that the is, Israelis have to the land is grounded in the promises of God that you find in the Old Testament, but that's as far as it goes. And if you know your Old Testament, was the land empty when Abraham got there? Yeah, was the land empty when Joshua got there? No, how did they take the land? By conquest, it is fruitless. I'm just telling you. I'm a bit of a student of history. It is fruitless to get into the, well, who was here first game? Going back 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. It just doesn't get people anywhere. You have to deal with things are, and the story of the modern state of Israel is not to be found in your Bible. It's to be found in the history since the late 19th century, the Zionist movement, the end of the First World War, the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire, and the culmination after the Second World War with the UN mandate to create a, a, a nation of Israel and a, and a, a Palestinian state, as it were. It didn't work out that way. I don't think the Arab, the Arab states clearly did not want it to work out that way. And that's been the history for 75 years. And, but it doesn't really have anything to do with what we're reading here. I, I get why it's, you wonder how is it tied. No, it doesn't really. Any follow-up to that? Yes. Before 1948, it was, there was a Palestinian mandate, which was that whole area of land governed by whom? Great Britain. Great Britain, exactly. So did they just back out of their province? Or what? Well, great, great, Britain, great Britain wanted out of all that. And so the UN came in and said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We need a homeland for these Jews that, you know, <laughs> Europeans had murdered millions of, because the Germans are Europeans, right? And so there was, there were this, this, the state of Israel. But if you look at a map, the Wall Street Journal has up some good maps right now on this. If you look at the map from 1947, there's just all these little bits of land that really aren't even connected, that constitute Israel, and everything else is left for Palestinians. Um, at that time, Jews were expelled by and large from the Arab countries. But the Arab countries would not take in any of the Palestinians that needed a new home. And just as they're not, 
How many Arab countries right now are stepping up to take in Gaza, refugees from Gaza? None of them are. None of them are. And there, yeah, there, the, okay, I'm gonna, I don't I guess, I guess, yeah, I'll go. So the reason is because they want to eliminate the state of Israel. They don't want to accommodate the state of Israel. They want to eliminate the state of Israel. That's why there were wars in 47, 48, 57, 67, 73. What were all of those wars aimed at? These were nation states falling upon Israel. They were all aimed at pushing Israel into the sea. Consequently, you, if you read the slogans of you know, some of these pro-Hamas demonstrations, they'll say from the river to the sea, from the Jordan River to the sea, which makes no room for Israel. So why did Israel turn down, I mean, why did the Palestinians turn down an offer 20 years ago that would basically have given them most of what they wanted? Because Israel would have gone on, and for many over there, that's just not, that's just not acceptable. So I think a good way to begin to learn the story over there is by looking at the maps. It's kind of like, well, when Israel got the Golan Heights in 67, no, they didn't give it back. Why couldn't they give it back? Because they couldn't defend themselves that they gave it back, because the Golan Heights is perched right over the top of all of the Sea of Galilee and all of the shorelines and all of the cities, Tiberias and the rest of it, around the Sea of Galilee. Patty and I have been up there. We were up there last a year ago um, to, at the invitation of one of our guides. There, there is still, up on the top of the Golan Heights, by the playground for this kibbutz-like development. It's not a kibbutz, but it's attached to one. There is a big artillery piece, Syrian, comes from Russia, but it was put there as the Syrians were bombing around the Sea of Galilee, these places so many of us have been. Nobody down there was safe from these guns. So the Israelis, when they got the land up there, they, have, they just said, no, we are not giving it back. And that pink artillery piece is still there. You, the kids play on it. Why is it still there? As a reminder. You travel around that part up there in the Golan Heights, you know what the kids have to be taught? How to stay out of the minefields. Because there are still minefields up there. Minefields. Minefields are nothing except about terror and human destruction. That's all, that's all minefields are about. Um, and they, you can drive around, you can see the fenced-in areas with the big prominent signs, don't, don't go into this pasture. It's a minefield, and the children have to be taught to stay out of them. It's, it's a very tenuous thing, and it's all jam-packed into, into that small area. So anyway, maybe that helps a bit. Go to the Wall Street Journal, look for their maps. They've had, they have this series of maps up right now on, attached to an article, and the maps are helpful. Okay, so. Anything else, Patty? Oh, Patty has a picture. <laughs> a picture. <laughs> I thought when I turned 73 that I would no longer sound like I was in puberty. So, um, 
Is it? It's pink, right? It's pink. It's Lior's it, little boy. It's pink as can be. Yeah. yeah. Pepto-bismol pink. What? Pepto kind of a Pepto-bismol. It's not an attractive <laughs> pink, if there is such a thing. It's not a Barbie pink. It's a Pepto-bismol pink. Yeah. <clears throat> Just if, if, if you make your way from Lior's house, in which the eldest son's bedroom is a bomb shelter for the family, um, you make your way to the playground, and at the playground next to all the string, uh, swings, there's this little structure that looks like a bathroom to us Westerners. It's not a bathroom. It's a bomb shelter because they have so little time to respond to the sirens. They have 15 seconds or less to get to somewhere because they're so close to, to, to Lebanon up there and Hezbollah. It's, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. But Lior and his family, they love the land. They are Israelis. They are not going anywhere. I am sure if you called them tomorrow and say, I got four airplanes, one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> they have four kids, six airplane tickets for you. Lior and his wife Ayala would say, no, no, we have to stay. We, we, we can't abandon this. We have to stay. So, anyway, okay. So, friends, where was I? <laughs> what? So, the confrontation with Shammai. You shall not die. Well, let's do, let's do the little Mephibosheth one. Um, no, let's not. Because it's actually a little long. So, we'll... The <laughs> Yeah, well, there we go. So the next person that David is going to encounter, remember this is on his return, is, Me is Mephibosheth himself, who was not Ziba, who was Mephibosheth's steward, going all the way back to the ninth chapter, but Mephibosheth himself. And remember when we were going through David's departure, I said, you're meeting this person and this person and this person and this person. When David returns, you will meet them again. And that's exactly what we're in the midst of right now, is meeting them again as David returns to claim his throne in Jerusalem. And when, when this is all done, which isn't far ahead, there are one, two, three appendices to the book of Samuel um, that we will read and then we will go into the first couple chapters in the book of Kings because that completes David's story until the point of his death. Okay? So, whew. anything else today? You know what? You should be worried. You should. We should be worried. This that this place is a powder keg. We should be worried. Is there much we can do? Uh, there's a lot we can do in that we can pray, and prayer avails, right? But otherwise, pray and then pray and then pray some more. But if you're worried about it, yeah, that's that's sensible. 
Yes. Even though Israel denies that they have nuclear weapons, I'm telling you, Sure. So I, pretty much everybody accepts that the Israel's have Israel has nuclear weapons, which, you know, that's a layer to this. That I mean, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, you know, it's 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 a dangerous world, and it's made dangerous by. By what? By human sin. These are all. They all add up out of choices that people make. These are not even like hurricanes or tornadoes or something which, you know, these are all choices made by humans. And so we pray and we pray and we even perhaps pray Maranatha come Lord Jesus, right? Because when Jesus returns and is welcomed in much like David was walking and escorted across the Jordan River, when Jesus returns, it will usher in the new heavens and the new earth and the end of wars and death and illness and the rest of it. But until then, we have to press on and remember that it's not over until Jesus returns. And that even death is not our end. It is not our end. We enjoy a life. We will enjoy a life after death. And we will enjoy a life after life after death called resurrection. So don't lose heart. But it's not crazy to be concerned, Donna. Not at all. Okay, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we do live in such a... seems like such a difficult time. Um, people have lived in difficult times before, but there are technologies out there now which just seem to keep amping up the troubles and the prospects and the possibilities, and we pray for peace, and we pray for justice, and we pray that there is a path forward through this um, that will return the land of Israel and this region to at least a semblance of the peace that has been enjoyed for the last 15 years or so. Um, it's, it's very difficult and we know that this is the time we are called upon to pray. So let us be a praying people and pray for justice and peace. All this we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.